0: tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning, the stock market dropped to its lowest level in 2022. And while some forecasts indicate that we will be dealing with the recession in 2023, Paul Brubaker of TZ Economics says, don't fret so much, we are already living with the contraction. But what does this mean as we try to deal with our housing crisis? Brubaker points to regulations as the biggest barrier to boosting our housing supply.
1: So asset prices are an important indicator of how investors view the future and stock prices you're seeing where the risk of recession already has been present for several months is seeing a new round of concern about the possibility of recession or severity of recession. And that's why stock prices have fallen recently. I think more broadly, home prices are now in decline across the country, but in decline on a seasonally adjusted basis over the summer here on a one single family prices, not condo prices, are both an indication that something's coming. And of course, the Federal Reserve meant to engineer that with rising interest rates and other measures of monetary policy designed to cool down a somewhat overheated post-pandemic economy that was that was throwing off a, a bit too much inflation. Part of the inflation is coming from global supply chain disruptions, geopolitical risk in the case of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, although some of those impacts, in, for example in oil prices and fuel costs, have now reversed or moving back in the other direction. In fact, oil prices today are the same as they were pre-COVID. So. That particular source of inflation, if even if oil prices simply stay where they are now, which as they say is the same place they were three years ago, even if that source of recent inflation stays at eighty dollars a barrel or seventy dollars a barrel, something in that range, the inflation con- contribution will go to zero. Some of the inflation is in the supply chain, and some of the inflation is from leftover stimulus, and in fact, it's kind of ironic to hear state government brag about how much money it has left over for some reason they didn't spend the pandemic relief during the pandemic or at the height of the pandemic and now they're all excited to go spend more money and the whole problem is there's just too much aggregate demand out there
0: well you know you look at social media you're starting to see people squawk about painful electric bills and the price of gas hasn't really gone down that much and then people are worried about you know what is this going to mean for our great housing demand you know are 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 we going to see prices really hurt our ability to to build what we need
1: I mean just think about the first thing cited, which was, you know, high retail gasoline prices, I think is what we were talking about, and or electricity prices. So let's think for a second, if oil today is the same price it was, crude petroleum is the same price it was five years before COVID, then why should gasoline and electricity prices be higher? I'm not saying they aren't or won't be, but I'm saying the crude petroleum is the same price it was for the five years before COVID. And in fact, it's lower than the price of crude petroleum for the five years before that. So if there's a problem with fuel prices and electricity costs, I'm not saying there isn't, it doesn't have anything to do with the price of oil anymore. And for, you know, answers to why that's a problem, I think we need to start talking about corporate profits and the role these companies play and why the electric company is being paid as much for the electricity that is generated from people's rooftops and a bunch of other things. But it ain't the price of oil, (laughs) sorry to say, not anymore. I mean, it was for the last 12 months or so. Most of what was coming from oil inflation was just the recovery of the, the earlier decrease in oil prices that followed the initiation of the of the global pandemic, so right it, there was a V-shaped path for oil prices and other commodities as the pandemic first arrived through everybody for a loop, and then as recovery uh, returned us to where we were more or less pre-COVID those same prices came back to the same levels they were before. So there's something else going on. And I think at some point we should talk about that, but it's not the price of oil. So housing costs, there are actually two things you brought up in the same breath, which is why did housing costs all of a sudden go up after COVID? And did they really go up that much? So let's just speak to the Oahu experience. Basically for the last 10 years, prior to COVID, home prices were rising about 4 or 5% on Oahu and about 5 or 6% on the neighbor islands. On the neighbor islands, they were rising from a deeper trough after the housing bubble of the early 2000s. So neighbor island prices fell further, so they had to recover farther, you know, on the way back up. But essentially a path of around 4 or 5%. Annual home price appreciation was characteristic of the 20 teens, which was a period of low interest rates and the most affordable period for housing that Hawaii's seen in the 45 years, for which I have data, I have data back to 1976. And there was no time housing was more affordable than in the seven or eight years leading up to COVID. Now, you wouldn't know that from social media, as we were saying a second ago, and it's not cheap because it's Hawaii, right? Housing is expensive because this is a cool place, but the window of affordability, which was held open mostly by low interest rates and relatively modest rates of home price appreciation, went away after the COVID recovery began. So not the initial COVID shock in the spring of 2020, but after the summer of 2020, there was a sudden acceleration of single-family home prices, not condos as much. In fact, condo prices today are right on Oahu are right where they would have been if you look at the median condo resale price, price of an existing condo sale, um, are right where they would be on that same trajectory we were just talking about—the path that was established from about 2011 through about 2018. If you just projected it forward. It's single-family home prices that had a little bit of a surge—not a little either—went up maybe twenty percent or a year for part of that last two and a half or two years since the summer of twenty twenty. And what that was about was something that was structural that was happening in where people uh, work, where they live, how much they have to go to a workplace now versus how much they used to have to go to the workplace pre-COVID, which was all the time. Now, remote work has been widely adopted, if not widely accepted among employers. Employees love it. And we're settling down to a situation now where maybe 20% of the workforce is in hybrid or remote work arrangements. When pre-COVID, it was only 5% to 10%. And so, say the share of the workforce that can work in hybrid remote arrangements with their employers or with respect to their workplace, say that that share of households are doubled. Well, that's a significant part of households that don't have to live where they used to. So that's a one time effect of COVID. It's a small part of the workforce. It's a very narrowly defined, it's people with higher educational attainment, people with more science and math skills, people in occupations that enable them to work remotely and not all occupations and not all industries have that capability to be sure. But the point is that it's settled out now after a couple of years of adjustment. And so those single family home prices are settling back. They're, I don't think they're going to collapse, but they are definitely you know, settling a little bit. So the window of affordability has gone temporarily, at least as mortgage rates increase and we're moving into a period now where the problem the perennial problem which is on the supply side of the housing market right everything I talked about is on the demand side where and now the perennial problem of housing supply persists for which recent research at UH the hero research team has documented that Hawaii's four counties that Honolulu among metropolitan areas have the worst the most restrictive housing regulatory environment in the country confirming what we've all known we've been talking about for 20 30 40 years that there's nowhere else in the country that is as bad at enabling home building uh, as is Hawaii like by twice as much you know as as anywhere else in the country right so
0: we've, a- we so we've got that kind of dragging us down Uh, Yes, and, and, you know, the the lawmakers, you know, are are saying, well, look, we're going to throw all this money at housing going forward. Uh, But how do you see, you know, the prospect of a a recession, you know, hurting our ability to build?
1: Well, the point is that people in government, I appreciate that they're committed to uh, solving housing problems. I, if, they're, if they're not committed to reducing the regulatory burden on home building, then it's not going to have any impact. They seem to be interested in building housing, which I never thought the government was very good at. They don't seem to be committed to what in the rest of the world would be called social housing or public housing because they're afraid of being accused of being socialists. So, you know, there's that political peculiarity of them. So I'm not sure what it is exactly they're talking about because we have plenty of people who can build private housing if they would just be allowed to build the private housing and the problem is they can't. Right. There hasn't been any regulatory changes that have made it easier. The whole point of the Euro study is that regulation has made it harder, not easier. But on top of that, we have the higher interest rates. And so to go back to the point we were trying to make here about uh, inflation and recession and so on, right now the problem is that the one-time shift in certainly in single-family home prices that one-time jump is going to lead rents to be higher. The supply didn't change. Demand did in ways that uh, some prices, single-family home prices, could go up. They're not going to collapse, but they'll probably get back on a trajectory in which they move along at the old path, 4 or 5%. Between those two events in home price movements, rents have to adjust. So we'll see residential rental costs continuing to move up. Even after the gasoline prices, fuel and energy prices, and the other prices that went up because of global supply chain disruptions, even after those prices, for example, building materials, uh, after those prices stop inflating, housing costs, unfortunately, are going to continue making an adjustment upward over the next couple of years before settling down, I think.
0: That was Paul Brubaker of TZ Economics talking to us this morning about the inflation recession jitters and how that might affect our housing crisis. Our election coverage continues with a look at the ballot questions across the state. Today we focus on what Maui County voters will have to decide. HVR Sabrina Bowden joins us. Good morning. Good morning Catherine. So Maui County voters will have 15
2: ballot proposal questions on their ballots this year and that came about after a year-long process where the Charter Commission introduced 11. The council came up with two alternative proposals and two of their own for a grand total of 15. The Charter Commission had gone on like a listening tour. They met with county residents, 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 county departments, as well as the council. And originally, they were working with over 150 proposals. They whittled that down to 85, and then they got to the 15 that are going to be on the ballot.
0: Boy, they're going to really
2: tax the the voters out there. (laughs) Yeah, so that's why we have this, so that we can have some voter education, let them know what's going to be on the ballot before they sit down with it. Kawanoi Batongan is a first-time commissioner on the Maui Charter Commission. He's worked in federal, state, and county government systems before, and he looked at this volunteering position as a way to better shape government. And he explained some of his philosophy going through this process.
1: My
3: personal philosophy for treating the charter was that it should be a tool to guide decision-making. It shouldn't be a document where we do making. And so I championed things like Independence for our election administrator and auditor, Um, just requiring a fiscal impact assessment and closing a loophole for our financial disclosure laws.
2: And one thing that I noticed while looking through these ballot measures was the need to better allocate resources. One proposal that we've heard a lot about is potentially creating a Department of OEV resources to better manage cultural resources on the island. But there's another proposal that looks at turning the Department of Housing and Human Concerns into two different proposals. It would be one focused on housing and another on the more social human concerns aspect. It would also create a housing advisory board to advise the director of housing, as well as create a liaison for the Department of Housing to specifically work with the Department of Hawaiian Homelands. And part of the reasoning for this proposed split was to kind of look at where the county was spending more time and resources and to kind of direct them more into the housing and building.
3: The idea is that houselessness is not just a product of there being too few houses on the island, but there are social and economic reasons why people can't obtain home ownership. So this proposal would bifurcate that department. It would create one separate department of housing and one separate department of human concerns. The thinking being that there is not enough resources being dedicated towards housing and that the department is currently focusing too heavily on the human concerns. So bifurcating the single department that we have now would require the county to dedicate more resources to housing development.
2: And there are a few ballot proposals that have to do with government transparency and closing the loopholes, as Batungan had said earlier. So there's proposal six that would amend the charter to remove a cap on penalties for violations and give the council discretion to set fines. That would be for things like illegal vacation rentals. There's another proposal, proposal seven, that would prohibit the mayor from requiring signed resignation letters as a condition of appointment. That proposal didn't come out of any recent examples, but it's to ensure that it wouldn't happen in the future. And then there is Proposal 11 that would require the county auditor to assess the financial impact of proposed amendments 60 days ahead of the election, sort of as voter education. And Batunkin explained that having concrete data and metrics available would lead to voters making better informed decisions on their ballots.
3: A recent example would be when in the last term we voted to create Department of Agriculture. And the people who were for it today it wouldn't cost the county anything. We would just take existing personnel and move them to a new department where they would be able to better focus on uh, agricultural issues. That turned out to not be the case. It cost the county a lot. And I think, you know, regardless of the merits of having a Department of Agriculture, I think our elected officials and those who are pushing for these big changes to our county should, you know, be called out on what they're saying. I think there should be some kind of accountability. I don't think you can just say it's not going to cost any money to create a new county department and get, be able to get away with it. So things like that mm-hmm. are, will be called out. And that's why I think it's so important to have an independent fiscal impact analysis.
0: It sounds like a good idea. You know, what, what are mm-hmm. voters voting for? How much is it going to cost us? Yeah. And I think it kind of plays into where is our money
2: going and having these sort of grand proposal ideas. It's it's sort of like in the air. We're not sure how much it's going to cost, and we can say we're moving resources over, but are those resources actually able to be moved over?
0: Right, I mean, it, it sounds, though, with all these ballot questions, that voters are gonna have to bone up on a lot, so I imagine there's gonna be some education campaigns <laughs> underway. Yeah,
2: there's um, different like reports available online, and you can go and see the ballot proposals. We break them down on the hawaiipublicradio.org website. We kind of explain what the big hits are, as well as share a little bit about what the commissioners had said about them. Okay.
0: And I know you've been kind of looking from a bird's eye view of the different counties, but is this the largest or the most questions? Mm -hmm. Fifteen is the most.
2: Um, The Big Island, Kauai, and Honolulu all have either three or four. A
0: little more manageable.
2: (laughs) A little more manageable, and they aren't really Creating
0: entire departments, either. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Sabrina. We appreciate your uh, doing the work to help the voters out. We've been chatting with HPR Sabrina Bowden. Look for her stories on those charter questions again at our website, hawaiipublicradio.org.
1: support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, an immersive exhibition of flowers and plant materials. Rebecca Louise Law, Awakening, celebrates the abundance and vulnerability of nature. On view now.
2: What makes something essential? Essential is what connects us to the world or escape to another. Essential is what gets you through your day. Essential is what you can't go without. You've told us that HPR is your essential listening, and we can't bring this vital statewide service without your financial support. $10 a month from listeners like you makes a difference.
0: Donate today at hawaiipublicradio.org. Honolulu Beat has a story today about a federal criminal case that has long dominated the headlines. Journalist Ian Lynn joins us for our reality check today with some troubling details from court records that were just recently unsealed. Good morning, Ian.
4: Good morning. I guess it's a good morning.
0: Yeah, well, this case is the um, uh, Mike Miske case.
4: Correct. Former owner of Kamina Termites, uh, M Night Club, and a number of other local businesses.
0: And so, gosh, what is it that uh, the federal government has uh, unsealed exactly?
4: <clears throat> well, um, after a legal challenge to continued secrecy, they have unsealed and made available to the public, um, I believe it's 47 search warrants and related documents um, going back to 2015. And there's another additional uh, 21 or so uh, that are remain sealed because the government says and the, and the court agrees they are related to ongoing investigations that could still lead to charges. Apparently, um, normally after one year or after the indictment of the person who's been investigated the search warrants become public. Um, that didn't happen in this case and, and so you know some of these have been there since 2015. the indictments were filed. In uh, 2020 and 2021, um, and yet they were still withheld. So, they're 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 giving the public a view of some additional details that were not available previously.
0: Okay, in this case, it uh, revolves around the disappearance of a, a 20-year-old a man, Jonathan Frazier. Uh, and this was a case that dates back to what 2016?
4: Correct. Yes. So. Frazier was the best friend of Mike Miske's son. They were both in a terrible accident in the end of 2015. Frazier survived. Caleb Miske did not. And apparently Mike Miske blamed Frasier for the crash, even though he wasn't driving, and there was no evidence that he was driving. But the government alleges that Miske arranged a murder-for-hire plot and directed that he be killed. And one of these search warrants... Um, describes an eyewitness who went to the federal government in 2016 at the end of the year. He, he, had, he said he had seen Frazier tied up, um, taped up, and, and restrained in a home in Kalihi. And two of Miski's associates, who were involved in drug deals and other things with him, were basically torturing him. Um, beating him, and then using a, a portable gas torch, uh, starting to burn his hands, his feet, and other parts of his body. Um, the, the, the witness was only 20 years old. He was a kid trying to make it in the criminal world, I guess. That's the best I can, I can say. Uh, he went home. He was despondent. He tried to kill himself. He finally confessed to his grandmother um, what he had seen, And eventually his grandmother got him to go to authorities and tell them what he knew. The terrible part is three years later, he was back in in OCCC for violating the terms of his probation. And he was murdered um, after he was discharged from protective custody and put in the general population. And he was murdered allegedly because he was known as a snitch.
0: Gosh, and so, you know, this is uh, new information that we're getting about, you know, uh, possible torture uh, 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 of Frasier. And uh, gosh, I mean, you know, like I said, we're learning more and more about this. And this is really a drawn out um, investigation uh, in court battle. Uh, You know, when is Miski supposed to uh, uh, get a trial?
4: They are scheduled to go to trial in April of next year, and it's all a result of the just gigantic amount of evidence that has been disclosed to the defendants and their attorneys. Well over 80 terabytes of digital data, more than two and a half million pages of documents, um, hours and hours and hours of um, video, audio, and tens of thousands of, of photographs all taken over a period of years, going back, some going back as long as um, 1999,
0: 2000. Wow. So definitely a long, drawn-out case, and and we'll see what happens in the spring, Uh, and hopefully it it doesn't get put off. But thank you so much, Ian.
4: All right. Thank you.
0: That was reporter Ian Lynn with today's Reality Check. Read his story online at org. used to be home to hundreds and hundreds of unique endemic snail species. Scientists estimate that almost two-thirds of those species are now gone and conservationists are racing to save the rest. The conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote spoke with Chris A. Johns, director of the recent documentary entitled Kahuli, and Tom Van Doren, author of the new book, World in a Shell, about their work bringing the story of Hawaii snails called Kahuli to the forefront.
5: Tom, I'd like to start with you. You mentioned your book is called A World in a Shell. And in Hawaii, I understand that we used to have an abundance of native snail species, close to 750, over half of which we've lost. But snails, unlike many other species, do leave something behind. They have shells. And there is a large collection of those shells at Bishop Museum here in Honolulu. And you had the opportunity to see that. Can you describe that experience?
6: Yeah, that's a really incredible collection. Um, It's sort of much bigger than anything I'd imagined. And it goes on for for rows and rows uh, of these cabinets that, that reach up almost to the ceiling. Um, and each of them is uh, relatively thin drawers filled with these, these little cardboard trays, each of which has uh, a collection of shells from, from some part of, of the Hawaiian Islands, some others from, from beyond, from the broader Pacific. It's, it's a really difficult, I think in many ways, experience to go in there and to know that this is the only place left where you can see many, many of these species. This is, is all that's left of them. So it's an important resource, it's an important record, and it's now being used to, to really think about what what was once here, what might still be here, and to plan that conservation effort. And that's one of the things that, that really impressed me about all of the, the work that they're doing at the Bishop Museum is that close connection between taxonomy, which we often think of as quite an arcane, abstract um, sort of preoccupation with what, you know, is this that species or, or that species. Um, but it, when it comes to invertebrates and to snails in particular in this case, it's it's really important work where they're, they're really trying to still figure out exactly who was once here and might still be here and use those records from the past to, to seek those snails out, some of whom there's hopefully still time for.
5: And Chris, for your documentary, you went with scientists up to the Ko'olau ranges, which is where many of these species would have been found. What are scientists specifically trying to do in that area? What did you document in terms of their work?
7: Let's see, I went up there with both the, the Snail Extinction Prevention Program and Bishop Museum researchers in, I think, 2019. Um, and we went up to a part of the Ko'olau range to. To try to locate this one species of snail that they had good evidence was ra- on the rapid decline. This is population that they had been visiting in this one very small cluster of sites that, that wouldn't be larger than, I don't know, say like a, a football field all, all pushed together. But in this area was was what they at the time had had thought was the, the last known population of this snail species called Akatonela livida. Um, I think there's been some name changes a, around that to the taxonomy um, since then, um, but still a, nonetheless an extremely rare and imperiled snail. And, and they've been going back to this site over the, the course of, of decades, I believe, um, and just kind of watching the, the numbers dwindle away. At one point in the film, uh, um, Dave Sisco, who uh, heads the Snail Extinction Prevention Program, he he mentions that like, just having uh, come up here a few years ago, you could have walked around and picked out a, a snail on any of these trees, these exact trees that they're looking at um, at this point in the film, and seen a snail. Um, and they had searched, and in the documentary it covers this, they searched for hours. I was with them during this time. Searched for um, 10 plus hours and only ended up finding one individual towards the very end. And in this case, uh, with this species, they chose to, to evacuate that individual snail back to the Snail Extinction Prevention Program lab where they uh, would join other members of its same species and, and would benefit from the protection of captive rearing. It really left an impression on me.
5: There are definitely steps that scientists can take, and you mentioned at least two of them in terms of taking species into captivity that seem to have no other recourse but in the field also predator-proof fencing, removal invasive species to preserve what habitat still remains in the Ko'olau range as well as other places in Hawaii. But a lot of what these scientists spend their days doing is just looking and watching and documenting, hopefully, the survival of species, but more often not, the loss of species and Tom, you had some experience with that because, as you said, Bishop has this historic collection of all of the species that have already been lost. How do scientists keep perspective when this is their life's work, when this is what they dedicate their life to?
6: One of the things that really interested me in, in the book was trying to think about um, what I, I was calling mournful hope as in an effort to try and, and describe the the atmosphere uh, um, amongst some of these these teams, um, who are yeah doing this really difficult work day in day out, I think the work in in the lab that Chris just mentioned is is a really good example of that where. You know, they're, they're having to keep these snails alive in captivity. That's not easy. You don't just stick them in the fridge and forget about them. You, you've really got to um, look after them, and they're changing the, the vegetation that they're in there with. They're monitoring for diseases. They're doing checkups under the microscope to look for mites that might be on them and giving them baths with a pipette if they got any mites. Um, so there's, it's a really difficult, ongoing process, a, a labor of care. Um, and so there, there's definite hope, there's, everybody wants these snails to get back out into the forest, nobody wants them to be in captivity like this. And yet at the same time, they are disappearing, and there isn't really anywhere safe for them to go, uh, except those very small fenced areas in the forest. So so the whole process is also pervaded by this deep sense of loss and mourning, and a big part of what has interested me is the need to hold on to both of those things. And um, but not to let either of them sort of o- overpower the other, that we, we do need to be hopeful, we do need to keep generating enthusiasm and interest and not give up. But at the same time, I think we, we need to be, have an honest reckoning and acknowledge that a lot has been lost and, and more will be lost and not just amongst snails, but you know, as we enter deep, more ever more deeply into this period of climate change and, and mass extinction, you know, uh, species of all kinds are uh, being and will be lost, and, and landscapes and ways of life and and more. So so trying to reckon with that and be honest about it, I think, is a key part of of maintaining a kind of responsible form of hope for what we might still be able to hold on to.
5: I love that notion of, of a responsible form of hope. I think there is a question that you have to consider very carefully when you sign up to report on species like the ones we have here in Hawaii, which is what are you trying to accomplish with your extinction storytelling? Chris, what kind of questions did you ask yourself when you set out to make this film about what you wanted to leave viewers with?
7: That's a good question. I think uh, with, with creating this film, there's a vast academic literature and body of Popular media um, that spans all different media types about the extinction crisis, um, and just for me personally, I you know get desensitized um, to to a lot of that stuff. To to be honest, and even as somebody that's like worked in conservation before, that is an academic, um, it's it's tough to feel that over time. But there is. I believe in in uh, the power of certain kinds of media to to kind of like crystallize almost like condense um, some some of the 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 intensity of these feelings within this this greater topic for the audiences that that maybe need to hear it most, um, and that's really what what this film was about was covering a number of different perspectives and packaging them in such a way that we hoped uh, would resonate with the target audience, which is primarily people of Hawaiian descent, um, people of Polynesian descent, people that care about Hawaii academics, people just generally members of the public, decision makers. Um, And so, you know, with this film, we, we really tried to just make something that was uh, very narrowly focused on a specific topic that we knew that a certain audience needed to hear. Um, and that's, I, I think, how we ended up with the film that that we did. We wanted to share, we wanted to, to talk really honestly with these different audiences about some of the stuff that was happening that, that we knew that was important to them that they had probably you know maybe heard about on a news headline um, from a friend um, but maybe hadn't had it really packaged in this this broader um, ecosystem of cultural importance of scientific importance Um, we have a lot of different messengers in the film to carry this this message with different audiences and so it really is this this unique tapestry that that we made specifically for the purpose of, of trying to share with people um, and, and kind of just break through the noise a little bit about this important topic.
0: That was director Chris A. Johns and author Tom Van Doren on how to responsibly tell stories about extinction. They sat down with the conversation Savannah Herman Pote about their work documenting Hawaii snails. And if you like snails and want to know more, Bishop Museum is planning the first ever Kahului uh, Snail Festival in October.
8: Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers,
7: scientists,
8: and creative artists.
7: Hello, I'm Joseph Selby, author of Break Through the Limits of the Brain. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about neuroscience and the meditation-born spiritual experience.
4: Beginning Sunday morning at 11.
7: The
0: final performance at Oahu's Ruger Theater is scheduled for this Sunday. The Diamond Head Theater Group has called the building home since 1952. It was built in the 1930s and has screened countless movies and presented hundreds of live performances. It's also been home for thousands of entertainers, both amateur and superstar alike. Future Diamond Head Theater productions will move to the larger and more modern theater that's just about uh, finished next door. The Conversations Russell Subiona got the chance to step into the time machine on one of the last tours of Ruger Theater.
9: The original construction of the Fort Ruger Theater was in 1932, when this whole area was known as Fort Ruger. That's
8: John Rampage, Diamond Head Theater's artistic director. He's given dozens of tours of Ruger Theater over the years, and today he's my guide. On our first stop, he has me standing in the midst of the seats. In front of me is the stage, Above me, six large chandeliers glowing dimly. Behind me, the old balcony.
9: The original construction of the Fort Ruger Theater was in 1932 when this whole area was known as Fort Ruger. It was part for instructional purposes and also as a movie theater. They did make some provisions when they built it To doing live performances but it was mostly like small uso shows or talent shows not much has really been altered in the interior obviously new seats and things like that those six light fixtures are original from 1932. they're one of the few items in the theater that are still original up there which is now where our admin offices are that was originally a balcony it wasn't so much a, a functional balcony they did occasionally put in seats up there when they needed to but that was where the movie projector was okay. that is now where our stage manager who is up right up there in back of that light sits as well as the two spotlight operators what's the seating capacity in here about 500 also in the Late 80s, we finally started doing body mics. Up until then, the acoustics were so excellent in this theater that we really didn't use amplification. It was the old style of having to learn how to project, which actually isn't taught that much anymore, and audiences have changed now. They're so used to having a remote control to take the volume up or down. So that went up in the late 80s. And since then, we microphone almost everything. That's the audience expectation compared to what it used to be. Right in back of the proscenium, where that, those metallic stripes are, underneath that is where the original orchestra pit was. We don't know, there is no documentation of exactly when they built the apron forward like that, but it made the original orchestra pit obsolete because it was so far back. So we have had to have our orchestra over here on the side for, I would say, 95% of our productions. Occasionally, if the script warrants it, we have had the orchestra on stage. So that's one of the great things about the new theater is the orchestra pit is going to be where it should be so they can connect better with the musical leader. Do you know what the first performance was in the theater? In this theater, no. For some reason, We have vast archives over the years, but I have not been able to find out what the first production was in this location. You're saying that
8: Diamond Head Theatre has been running for over 100 years. What can you tell me about Hawaii's relationship with theatre?
9: Well, I think one thing that's very important is that for many, many years, we didn't have mainland shows coming into Hawaii. And so theater here became very important because that was the only outlet that people had. I think theater is so important here in Honolulu because of Hawaiian tradition with hula and music, there's a connection there. There's a very strong connection. I think specifically in the kind of theater that we do, it's important to remember that even up through the 70s, nothing was live i mean you only got the evening news from la if it made the plane mm-hmm. most news was the day after television shows were a week or two weeks after so the chance to participate as an audience member in something that was live was very unique and very very special for instance in the 1950s and 60s emma Veery, ed Kenny, some of the top entertainers in Waikiki would do a, a show here, and the curtain was at 5.30 in the afternoon so that they could do the show and then do their gig. And people came because it was live. And of course, you know, things were much slower paced back then, but it was a regular thing, people accepted it, that if you wanted to see a live show with any of those stars, you came that early.
8: Next stop, the lobby. For a literal stroll down memory lane. The walls are covered with photos of past Diamond Head Theater performances and feature many
9: familiar faces. These are some of my favorites. This is, of course, Bette Midler in Showboat, which she famously was fired from. Emma Vury was the star. She was in the ensemble with this very small part. It was supposed to be New Year's Eve, and she decided to enlarge her ensemble. Persona, and they fired her. The next day they rehired her with the warning to never do it again, that it was unprofessional to be stealing the spotlight from the star. And I only say it because she herself told that story on the air. And she said she did learn. That's how she started to learn how to be a professional. This is actually, I think, the most interesting picture in the gallery because it's from The Sound of Music. This was the very first production we did of it, and what's very interesting is this lady is actually the youngest Von Trapp child. They used their last names in the play, but they changed their first names. She happened to be living here in Honolulu at the time they did this, and she came in as a sort of technical director, talking to them about how life was with their father, explaining that in actuality they escaped Austria in a totally different route rather than climbing every mountain, (laughs) because if they had gone that way, they would have walked right into the Nazis. They actually went the other way into Italy. This is a very interesting part of our history, Loretta Ablesser. This is the only original musical we have done in my 20, almost seven years. It was commissioned through Lee Cataluna, and Loretta was cast in the show as the lead. We were in rehearsal up here when I was contacted by the musical director for Lincoln Center, where they were casting the revival of South Pacific, and they wanted a truly Pacific Islander, which they were unable to find on the mainland, and they thought maybe coming to Hawaii. So we had uh, helped set up their auditions downstairs. We were rehearsing with Loretta, and she said, no, I'm not gonna go. I'm not gonna go, I've gotta concentrate on this. And the musical director at the time, Donald Yap, started playing Bali High, and he said, you are going to go downstairs, and you are going to do the best audition you can. She did. They loved her. They hired her. They took her to Broadway. She was nominated for a Tony Award. So it was wonderful to, to see the path that she took from being at our theater to starring on Broadway.
8: And then my mic stopped working. I checked my connections. I checked the battery. I checked the setting on my recorder. Initially, I couldn't figure it out. John and I walked back into the theater and up onto the stage. I double-checked everything, and to my surprise, it was all working normally. John told me it might not have been my equipment.
9: Oh, right, theater ghosts. Little tricks, but nothing to really scare anyone. And we were just saying the other day, we wondered if they were going to move to the new theater, or if they were going to stay here.
8: (laughs) Can you tell me again about some of the experiences that
9: well, you know the light that's kept on at night yeah. is called the ghost light. And it's so that the first person in the morning has light, but it's also supposed to be there for you know, to attract the ghosts or keep the ghosts. The ones that we have here in the theater, we've n- never really been able to identify, although several people over the years have seen my late mother, especially up on the second level watching the show. We know they're here they they've always been very warm and embracing they're not scary ghosts but they they do take care of us we respect them if you talked like this on the mainland people would think you were maybe a little you know crazy but here locally people accept it and understand it when they are seen or felt they tend to be high up watching the show watching over the show watching over us when i've been here by myself usually later in the evening you know i have heard people talking to me that and there's nobody in the building. But again, they're not presences that we're afraid of. They're very nurturing.
8: The last stop on the tour, the infamous dressing rooms. Down a flight of stairs, into the underbelly of the theater, into what is affectionately known as the cave.
9: Okay, so... This is the cave. You are technically under the stage right now. So this room typically holds 10 to 12 performers. We use it primarily as a a ladies dressing room because it's just up a short flight. This is the largest one in the building. It's called the cave because there is no windows or anything. Luckily, the air conditioning does come up here. But this is where the tradition started of writing your name as a remembrance of your time spent here. And as you can see, everything, the the uh, paper towel dispenser, the light switches, the entire ceiling. I see names, I see artwork, I see
8: titles of shows. Wow, wow, and literally covering the ceiling, the walls, air ducts, the trim around the mirrors, wow everything i mean there's very little room to
9: put more up there i mean it's and as i said more than anything else this is going to be hard to say goodbye to because this can't ever be recreated it's not glamorous but it's definitely unique yeah unique full of memories and very crowded yeah can you imagine this room with 12 to 14 women in it i mean as you can see with wigs with shoe changes with costumes it's tight but it actually creates a family Mm -hmm
8: kind of sentiment is there about having to leave this
9: theater oh especially for those of us who have worked here a long time this is our home this is not a nine-to-five job and everybody who has been here for a long period of time it's because they are so invested in this building and and quite honestly we did look at The difference between building a new theater and totally remodeling the inside here. It was actually less expensive to build a new theater. It's going to be very hard to say goodbye. You know, we're we're already moving things out, we're already, last week we had a huge dumpster out here. It's going to be very emotional, especially on October 2nd, which will be the final, final performance in this building. We're all keeping it together now because we have a job, but I think when it actually hits us on that day, it's going to be very difficult, and for our audience members as well. You know, I, I, over the years, have heard stories about, my parents went on their first date to your theater, or, I have the subscription series that my grandparents bought 40 years ago and have handed down to me. You know, in addition to shows, we've had funerals on stage, we've had weddings on stage, we've had proposals on stage. So it hasn't been just a location for entertainment, it really has been part of people's lives and has brought more than just entertainment. So we're we're sending out the word to those people about this final performance because we want the audience to be people that do have a, a really close relationship with this theater and want to say goodbye. And one of the things that we're gonna offer at that final performance is that they can write their name on the wall before it comes down, You know, just to be part of the history of this theater.
0: That was Diamond Head. Theater's artistic director John Rampage talking with HPR's Russell Subiano about the history of Ruger Theater. The building uh, is uh, supposedly going to be taken down next month with the first performance taking place in the new theater in January. Uh, again, that final performance in the Ruger Theater takes place Sunday, October 2nd. Uh, and we're told it's sold out. We'll have more information on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org later today. So I'm not a great romancer. I know that. That does it for us today. Tomorrow we plan to talk about the changing Aloha Stadium plans and more. Got feedback? Share your comments or questions about what you heard. Call us or email us at talkback at Connect with us on Facebook, too. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.